Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air with all of you. And you know, I know it wasn't too terribly long ago that I was last on the air with you guys. Although it seems like it's been longer, in actuality it hasn't. But nonetheless, I always enjoy being back on the air with you guys, even if it's a um, short hiatus, a.k.a. break. Well, in this uh, upcoming uh, podcast segment episode to Disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie by Alvin F. Oikel, we will uh, continue to learn um, as much as there is uh, possible about um, the elegance behind uh, the steamship Erie, but we will also learn about um, how many... Um, we will also learn, I should say, about uh, the immigrants. In other words... Where exactly were the immigrants coming from? Yes, it can be fair to say that I may have mentioned from a previous um, episode that the majority of the immigrants were coming from uh, Germany and perhaps uh, Switzerland, but it's more than just where they're coming from. It's how they are arriving into the new world by the numbers. In other words, one decade could see a certain level of numbers, of immigrants, the, the next decade could see a drastic uh, increase from the previous. In other words, it's not so much the numbers, but we also may need to learn why the immigrants are coming into the new world in such large forces. I think it's probably fair to say that most of you probably may know those answers, but at the same time, if I were to tell you them now, then maybe there would be no need to even do a podcast episode. I also know that we will um, learn about when the Erie um, goes about making her maiden voyage. We also will need to learn how successful her maiden voyage was. And we also might need to know whether or not a trial run was conducted before the maiden voyage. We also might need to know um, what other uh, hidden factors could be uh, put into play. In other words... That leads up to, um, not so much what leads up to, but um, factors that help that might give us a better understanding behind what goes into um, the day and it, as well as into the night of uh, August 9th, 1841, but more so the day. And we also will need to know um, a little bit more about how uh, the steamship Erie played a, a pivotal role. With her presence, believe it or not, she did have a presence along the Erie Canal. That would make practical sense. So these are the things that we're going to be talking about. It's not so much, oh, doesn't the Erie look beautiful on the outside? Sure, she can look wonderful on the outside. And yes, she can look great on the inside. But in order to understand the elegance, we also need to understand um, several other components that might go into um into the elegance, but also uh, challenges that will um, arise in the early years of this ship's existence. So in other words, it's probably fair to say that whatever does happen on August 9th, 1849, 1841, pardon me, was perhaps perhaps not just an isolated incident, but perhaps did this ship have some other mishaps before August 9th, 1841. So here we go with our uh, lead-off question for this uh, podcast 
segment episode to Disaster on Lake Erie, the 1841 wreck of the steamship Erie by Elvin F. Oikel. What was the forecast for steamship Erie going into, into the spring of 1838? She was noted as one of uh, 12 boats being built on Lake Erie, along with eventually joining the current ship roster of 41 whom were currently employed on the lake. Okay, well, yes, yeah, she was uh, built in 1837, but she still has some final touches uh, to be done before she can um, officially um, set sail along the waters of Lake Erie. But the fact that, um, that she will join the current ship roster of 41 ships already um, navigating Lake Erie's waters, that's remarkable unto itself. Now, May 25th, 1838 is a very, very important date. Captain Thomas Jefferson Titus took the steamship Erie to Charles Manning Reed's dock. And remember, folks, Charles Manning Reed is the owner of steamship Erie. And as for Captain Titus, uh, this um, journey to Charles Reed's dock, or trip rather, I should say, did include his full crew. And technically, this um, trip to uh, Charles Reed's dock was not a um, what we would call like a vacation. It wasn't a leisurely trip, folks. This was business. In other words, this was really considered a trial run. And if you want to have a good trial run, yes, you definitely need to impress the owner. You definitely need to impress those below the owner and perhaps the company whom built the ship. So in other words, yes, you can, um, you can show them what a great ship you, you have that you're commanding, but at the same time, you better um, have responsibility. In other words, you better uh, be accountable for your actions. You better be, um, you need to respect uh, your, your territory. You need to respect the ship itself. You need to make sure that you are putting um, safety above all, above all other things. There basically needs to be um, an overall sense of respect, urgency. There, there needs to be a sense of, um, of greater awareness. So this isn't, again, this isn't the following. Oh, look at this beautiful ship I'm commanding. Uh, everybody wave to me. Come get my autograph. No, that's not what uh, Captain Thomas Jefferson Titus ought to be envisioning. So when they do get to uh, Charles uh, Reed's dock... They do, um, Captain uh, Titus and his crew uh, do go about greeting the first set of passengers whom will um, go aboard his uh, ship. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with meeting the first set of passengers. In other words, you do want to um, make sure that the passengers, not only do you meet the passengers, but you want to make sure that the passengers whom you're meeting um have your trust, they have your faith in you, but they want to make sure that when they board your ship that they are going to feel comfortable from start to finish. And not just comfortable in terms of amenities and services provided, they just want to make sure that, hey, look, is this is this commander of Captain uh, Thomas Jefferson Titus the real deal? And if he does a great job on this go-around, hey, 
we'll certainly um, embark on another uh, boat um, excursion with him. So when you're meeting um, the initial uh, set of passengers, that first group, you, you want to make a good impression on them because sometimes in life you may not get that second chance. So the journey to Reed's dock, yes, it was considered a uh, trial, or what we call a practice run, for Captain uh, Titus's new official team of sailors on board um, steamship Erie. Now, the day after, being May 26th, the steamship Erie had to uh, go about conducting some uh, formal uh, business, and that um, that uh, Captain uh, Titus had to go about uh, registering with the federal government at Presque Isle Revenue Customs Station. He had to register his ship. If he doesn't register the ship, then how can the ship itself be allowed to uh, navigate uh, the waters of Lake Erie and even that of Lake Michigan or any other great lake? So in other words, you just can't take your vessel out there at your own um, pleasure or at your own um, really at your own leisure. I mean, if you want to sail uh, the waters, you've got to get um, approval from the customs station. In this case, with uh, the Presque Isle uh, Revenue, uh, or I should say customs station in um, Erie, or right on the outskirts of Erie, uh, Presque Isle isn't uh, too terribly far. As a matter of fact, um, I've got a, a good friend of mine from college uh, whose wife is originally from uh, Erie. She still has family that lives there, but she always talks about um, just how great of a place uh, Erie is and that uh, the city itself has really um, made a tremendous um, revival in recent years to where um, it's become a better uh, tourist attraction. So. I've never been to Erie myself, uh, but when my wife and I were coming home from Niagara Falls about five years ago, we did drive through um, Erie. And, uh, in other words, we drove past exits, but the irony to it is that here I am driving, and all of a sudden my wife says to me, Kirk, turn your head to the uh, right very quickly. You're not going to see, you're not going to believe what you're going to be seeing right on the waters of Lake Erie. And what do you know? There was a freighter. It wasn't just a little ordinary small freighter. It was a big freighter. So, you know, that that was pretty cool to see. So, uh, so no, I um, do hope to be able to uh, have some more time uh, to visit uh, Erie, Pennsylvania uh, one of these days, given that there's a lot of rich uh, maritime history in that, um, in that uh, area of northwest Pennsylvania. But uh, anyways, uh, Steamship Erie uh, was designed, or I should say built with a uh, low-pressure steam engine that was comprised of, of a 52-inch cylinder and a 10-foot stroke. And I'm sure some of you are thinking stroke. I mean, I, I know when we think of stroke, we think of medical-related, um, sensitive medical-related uh, matters. But in this case, um, when you hear of stroke with, um, like with uh, boat recreational um, use, think of it as like a type of uh, power cycle used by a piston engine. So, yep, there we have it, folks. Uh, the Erie, she um, has a low-pressure steam engine comprised of a 52-inch cylinder and a 10-foot stroke, being that of a type of uh, power cycle that's uh, used by a piston engine. Now, uh, May 26th, uh, besides the fact that Erie has been uh, registered with the federal government at the Presque Isle uh, Revenue uh, Customs Station, 
What else is important about May 26th? Well, besides registering with the federal government at Presque Isle Revenue Station on May the 26th, did Steamship Erie embark on her maiden voyage that same day? It turns out, folks, that she did in fact embark on her maiden voyage that same day. Her maiden voyage was uh, slated for departure from Erie to Buffalo and then westward to Cleveland, Ohio. That's a very uh, interesting um, uh, journey, to say the least. Um, to me, well, when I read this book, I thought to myself, you know, why not go from start out going from Erie to Cleveland and then return to Buffalo? Well, maybe that's just my thinking, but at the same time, um, I wouldn't have had any control over the schedule. It was just the way it was uh, coordinated. And knowing that Erie is pretty much, in a sense, the halfway point between Cleveland and Buffalo, who knows? Maybe it was just better for er for um, Steamship Erie to go first to Buffalo to pick up uh, passengers and then march uh, further westward where her final uh, route would take her on her maiden voyage into Cleveland. You know what? If that was the way to go about coordinating the logistics for her maiden voyage, then obviously the people whom uh, planned it obviously knew what they were doing. Well, we go into day three of this maiden voyage on May the 28th. Engineers, um, the fellow engineers by the name of uh, John Allen and Edgar Clemens, they bring... Um, a news report to Captain Titus, and this news report isn't good. You know, we'd like to think that maiden voyages, nothing can go wrong. Didn't we all, didn't we want to believe that that was the same thing with Titanic? I mean, not to jump the gun or anything, but didn't um, the White Star Line, weren't they convinced that, you know, given that Titanic was unsinkable, that nothing could happen to her on her maiden voyage or just in general? And what do you know? She struck an iceberg. She sank after after uh, two and a half hours, or two and a half hours after hitting the iceberg, she sank, uh, resulting in the worst uh, maritime disaster in that time, uh, in uh, in a time in uh, prior to leading leading prior up to World War One. But as for um, steamship Erie. Her captain, being Thomas uh, Jefferson Titus, is going to receive unpleasant news from uh, engineers John Allen and Edgar Clemens, and it has nothing to do with inclement weather. Although, yes, the Great Lakes can receive their share of inclement weather, but it just so happens, folks, that the ship's engine has malfunctioned. That's probably the last thing that Captain Titus wanted to hear, especially on this maiden voyage. So what happens to Erie, folks? I mean, think about it. Her, she's got a mal her um, engine is malfunctioned. She doesn't have a telephone. Well, of course, there's no such thing as a telephone. There's no such things as walkie-talkies. But the good news is that, given where the incident happened, she wasn't far from Cleveland's Harbor. So there was obviously there had to have been a ship nearby, or perhaps. Um, one of the lighthouses, uh, Cleveland does have its share of lighthouses, like any other uh, city along um, that's uh, right along the shorelines of uh, 
any of the Great Lakes. So it's probably fair to say that um, that we, uh, we would say uh, lighthouse uh, lookouts or uh, those uh, innkeepers whose uh, families run the lighthouse probably saw a ship in distress, being that of Erie, and perhaps were able to uh, bring out what's called a, a tugboat or a, a towboat. And so, therefore, Erie was towed into uh, Cleveland's Harbor where she got repaired. Okay, she got repaired, folks. And then, uh, what do you know? She uh, was able, the day after, on the 29th, she was able to return uh, back into uh, full service. And she went back to Erie before venturing into uh, Buffalo uh, once again. Well, um... I will say this, uh, quite a uh, twist of um, events. But I will say this, uh, based upon what I've read, not just from this book, but what I've um, learned about other uh, steamboats and steamships, regardless of whether it was their maiden voyage or five or six voyages after the maiden voyage, no matter how uh, successful um, a captain and his crew uh, were able to... Um, modify everything that could have gone unexpected or or could have in fact happened on an unexpected uh, notice or note steam engines no matter how good they were i think it's fair to say that a captain and his crew always had to be reminded that the steam engines had a mind of their own yes they may be working well on one leg of a journey but on the return back there was always a chance they could give out but the worst part is is knowing is not is not knowing when it could have could not have happened. In other words, you couldn't predict when it would happen. In the worst case scenario, if a steam engine gave out in the middle of the uh, water, and there's no way of being able to reach for assistance with a nearby uh, boat or let alone a lighthouse, then. Um, I hate to say it, but it's true. You re you might really be up a creek, uh, given the fact that there's no such things as walkie-talkies or, or telephone. I don't know if we even have what are called distress uh, rockets, which obviously were used um, right as Titanic was sinking in 1912 to get uh, the attention of that mystery ship that uh, more than likely being the Californian that was uh, 10 miles away. The distress rockets were not um, obviously used for entertainment purposes, but they were used as a means of um, last resort when communication by um, Marconi wire, uh, CQD uh, distress signals had failed. But of course, we don't have anything like a Marconi wireless uh, radio operation operational system in uh, 1838. That would have been great. Uh, what did the uh, weekly Buffalonian uh, report about steamship Erie on June 2nd, 1838? What do you think the weekly Buffalonian would have reported? Well, the newspaper marveled over the fact that Erie made her trip from Erie, Pennsylvania to Buffalo, New York, covering 90 miles in roughly 5 hours and 3 minutes. To me, that's quite a, um, an achievement, a feat. So think about it. This steamship is covering 90 miles in roughly five hours and three minutes. So if you do the math, folks, um, 
90 and uh, 5, if you do the division 90 into 5, what is that? What do you get? 18 miles. 18 times 5 is 90. So that's about 18 miles covered or navigated uh, per hour. From Erie to Cleveland, being the, um, the Erie to Cleveland trip on the maiden voyage took roughly 5 hours and 40 minutes to complete despite engine problems. And it, um, it was done in, uh, in 90 miles, but it was done right around 16 miles per hour. So the Erie to Buffalo excursion surpassed that of Cleveland um, the day after uh, May 28th. Well, the day after May 28th, uh, that saw uh, that day saw mechanics on the Cleveland dock uh, repair the engine to where this the steamship the steamship Erie was back up and running. So, you know, within think about it, folks, uh, May 29th, mechanics in Cleveland were able to get the engine repaired. And what do you know, just um, just four days afterwards, at best, the Erie um, achieved something that some people didn't think could happen, given that her um, steam engine had uh, problems on the uh, maiden voyage, and she's outsmarted them. She covered uh, 90 miles in roughly five hours and three minutes. To think that she could have covered the whole uh, trip in almost um, less than five hours would have been remarkable unto itself. Now, um, moving forward, uh, given that, of, of course, when Erie was first built in 1837, uh, the Erie Canal had already officially opened uh, for business in 1825. Uh, the final uh, phases of the canal had been completed in 1825, but uh, we should be reminded that in 1840 and 1821, uh, the first there were uh, certain sections of the canal that were open for uh, commercial um, purposes. But had the steamship Erie contributed to the Erie Canal's general success before and come the start of the 1840s? What do you all think? Do you truly think that steamship Erie did play a part in contributing to the Erie Canal's general success before and come the start of the 1840s? Uh, the answer is yes. How so? Well, given that mostly, um, given most notably um, the Buffalo Harbor being the Erie Canal's eastern hub. Now, I know, I know some of you are thinking, how in the world could that be the Erie Canal's eastern hub if, say, Buffalo is well west of Albany and Syracuse and uh, Rochester. But at the same time, it, it's technically considered an eastern hub if you um, live in places like Erie, Pennsylvania, Cleveland, Ohio, uh, just uh, Detroit, Michigan, uh, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, and the reason I say that is because if you need a hub going east of those, um, of those uh, cities, then uh, Buffalo is going to be that um, it's going to be that um, central hub. In other words, by venturing into Buffalo, then um, for that easternmost um, hub, then you'll be able to uh, not only uh, get your goods to where they need to go, but perhaps uh, people uh, whom are needing, whom are say wanting to take like a day trip excursion, visit uh, relatives. Uh, so basically, Buffalo could really serve as the buffer between East and West, but mostly for people living uh, west of Buffalo, but who need who need that uh, East, 
that easternmost hub on the Erie Canal, uh, that's where buffalo can serve as a vital uh, asset for all their um, most fundamental needs. So, yes, given most notably uh, the Buffalo Harbor, uh, the Erie Canal's eastern hub, was frequently seen getting filled to the max with freight moving east and westward. So, Steamship Erie was playing a part in this, folks. As a matter of fact, one fellow named uh, Thomas Farnham, he was a canal collector at Buffalo Harbor. He recorded in his journal log during the first week of August 1841 how canal boats transported per that time frame. And get this, folks. In, one, in the first week of uh, August 1841, canal boats were transporting Per Thomas Farnham's uh, log journal, they were transporting up to 11,000 barrels of flour, 20,000 bushels of wheat, 32,000 gallons of whiskey, to 5 million pounds of staves. Staves, that's spelled S-T-A-V-E-S. Do any of you all know what a stave is? I didn't know what a stave was until I read this book, as well as um, the... Um, well, more so this book, I'll put it that way. But nonetheless, a stave is a wooden plank. So think about it, folks. Five million pounds of staves, wooden planks. What do you think those wooden planks might have uh, been used for? For various, um, what do you call it, various internal uh, projects. Uh, projects that might benefit uh, railroads down the line. Uh, wooden planks that might help... Um, purposes that are used for, um, for uh, what do you call it, for canal, um, for other uh, spots along the Erie Canal where, um, say, if a stave or two is um, not in the best of shape and needs uh, a replacement, then you obviously need to have a new set of wooden planks uh, to be put in. So the steamship Erie has pretty much helped contribute to uh, westbound freight, not just uh, for uh, commerce purposes, but most of all bringing um, people, uh, most notably immigrants and those whom are um, whom are have uh, traveled traveled from point A to point B, whether it's for a leisurely purpose or let alone for uh, business um, related matters. Now, going into the start of August 1841, around August the 9th, where would Erie's furthest westward destination take her to along Great Lakes waters? She was slated to go as far west as Chicago, Illinois, on Lake Michigan, given that um, Chicago was the furthest point westward on her route. Remember, uh, folks, we learned from the previous uh, podcast that Erie's uh, steamship, uh, steamship Erie's route would take her, um, would go as far east as Buffalo, and then as far west as Chicago, but with some other stops prior to reaching Chicago, most notably like Cleveland, uh, Detroit. And uh, basically, you know, it's not just Lake Erie that uh, Steamship Erie is uh, catering to. You know, Chicago's on Lake Michigan, the only lake, the only one of the Great Lakes that does not go into Canada. So if she's going all the way to Lake Michigan then she definitely has to make as much of a valiant priority in um, picking up and dropping off uh, customers like she would on um, throughout uh, Lake Erie. 
Although uh, immigrants from German and Swiss nationalities made up the majority of uh, passengers embarking Erie on August 9, 1841, Erie's uh, passengers did consist of business people returning to Chicago and other cities along the Great Lakes, like, for example, Cleveland and Detroit. So we should keep in mind that um, even though, yes, a particular journey might comprise of a large majority of um, one group of people, say immigrants, we should also be reminded that other people make up the journey as well, too. Their, their numbers might be a smaller percentage, but they must not uh, be left out of the uh, overall uh, greater equation. German and Swiss immigrants' uh, journeys, and I thought this was very interesting, and I would have no doubts that you all would find this interesting, too, you know, we have to be reminded, folks, you know, it's easy to think, oh, that the immigrants must have uh, left their native homeland and gone by boat straight across the Atlantic Ocean, 3,000-some miles, and arrived into New York without any problems. Well, if you are a German or a Swiss immigrant coming to America, you're not going to necessarily go 3,000 miles straight across the ocean. Your journey might be something of the following. You will start out by uh, going on uh, horse-drawn carriages that will guide you along the Rhine River to a place along the northeast coast of France known as Le Havre, or Le Havre. I'm, I mean, pardon me, I'm, I'm not, uh, I know some things in French, but I don't know everything, so uh, forgive me there, folks. <laughs> so once uh, these German and Swiss immigrants would have uh, gone by horse, drawn carriages from the Rhine River to Le Havre, uh, France, uh, along the northeast coast of France, they would have crossed the Atlantic Ocean where um, once in Manhattan, okay, think about it, folks, once they have gotten into Manhattan, they would then go by boat over the Hudson River and the Erie Canal to Buffalo. Well, f well folks, remember um, the Erie Canal uh, connected the Atlantic Ocean to the Hudson River and went all the way to uh, Buffalo. So it, it was a perfect system for these people. I mean, why? I mean, there's nothing wrong with starting out on a horse-drawn carriage to get you from the Rhine River to the northeast coast of France. But do you really think the immigrants, given that they've just made it to Manhattan, are going to want to um, probably go on horse-drawn carriages all the way to Buffalo? Uh, folks, that would probably take them at best maybe four weeks. With the Erie Canal, and yes, most of these uh, packet boats, that's what most people are uh, traveling by. If not on a steamship, you're going on a packet boat. Packet boats at best are going five miles an hour, but they are very revolutionary for their time. I mean, uh, packet boats uh, can transport lots of people, and packet boats can get you uh, to and from point A to point B along a canal waterway probably uh, in less than four weeks and at best depending on how well the team of mules operate you might get to your destination in a week's time so therefore I think it'd be better to travel by canal than it would be by horse and buggy and think about the weather as well too if you if, if you're trying to travel by horse and buggy and the and mother nature doesn't cooperate yeah, you, you could be stuck in a rut for 
well over a week, maybe two at best, before it, before the uh, land terrain is safe to uh, navigate or travel along. Now, uh, given there was a total, folks, of 343 passengers aboard Steamship Erie, that's a, a big number, folks, 343 passengers. I mean, to me, that almost sounds like a mini Titanic or a mini Lusitania or Mauritania for its uh, day. But given that there was a total of 343 passengers aboard Steamship Erie, how many of those people consisted of crew and musicians? 38, folks, is the total number of crew, and 8 represented the total number of band members. I know that sounds a little bit odd, but we should keep in mind that just because we hear the number 343 passengers, that does not mean that all 343 were uh, people occupying um, a room um, aboard the ship. In other words, not all... how do I say it? Yes, everybody is going somewhere, folks. But we should keep in mind that, um, that yes, that there is a certain number of uh, people who are uh, make up the crew. And then there are a small number of people who are there to, um, perform, to provide some form of entertainment in the form of music. Now, uh, the passenger list, folks, um, I want us to keep uh, very... Uh, close watch on this one because this is going to be mentioned uh, more than once in other podcast episodes to come it's not I don't know if I want to say it's really really bad but it's just one of those things we can't uh, overlook or ignore the passenger list included a group of eight men whom were painters they weren't just uh, ordinary uh, painters that you know we would um Think about it. these weren't ordinary painters, folks. In other words, we're not going to call them up and say, "Oh, can you come paint our house?" These are uh, maritime painters. In other words, they they go about their job is to paint um, not just so much a vessel, but to help help out with any kind of other um, internal um, what do you call it internal um, work that uh, the ship itself might need besides uh, just um, a new coat of paint. So these um, painters, being maritime painters, they brought along their equipment and supplies for their next task at Erie's first stop in Pennsylvania. The materials uh, that they brought comprised of large paint jugs to turpentine and varnish. Well, is it fair to say, folks, that given they have brought their... uh, paint equipment that they are bringing stuff that we would think of in modern day times as hazardous material. Yes. And they were transporting hazardous material. And I'll just tell you this right now. Um, Of course, I'll have to mention it in another podcast segment, but I don't know at this point in time in 1838 if, or really by 1841, if there truly is such a thing as uh, the Department of Transportation uh, hazmat regulations or guidelines. And I just say that now because I can tell you in working in the uh, transportation industry, there are, uh, the trucking company I work for, there are uh, certain types of um, hazmat related material that we will not handle for uh, various uh, safety reasons. But anyways, uh, the maritime painter's equipment, this was not dinky uh, equipment, folks. The the equipment itself was so heavy to where two men at best had to grip handles regardless of the side. 
So in other words, you know, you got one man on one side and a man on the other uh, having to transport this heavy equipment from point A to point B. Well, the painters um, came, came on board Erie at around 3 p.m. August 9th, 1841. They placed supplies on the main deck near the steerage, a.k.a. the lower level cabin door. All paint supplies, equipment, got placed on the top of the outdoor, on top of outdoor air over ship's boiler plant. Folks, do you think that placing this equipment around the vicinity or just above a ship's boiler plant is a smart idea? Let's think long and hard about this, because the ship's boiler plant is only 11 feet below where this equipment is getting placed. Instead of taking the equipment down into the cargo hold, where it should have, uh, to me, if if someone had um, understood just how um, how intense it was to transport all this stuff, they should have made some arrangements to where they should have gotten all this stuff down, and and we might, and if that had been the case putting it in a better location like the cargo hold, I'm beginning to wonder if uh, something could be possibly avoided. I'm trying not to give anything away, but I just we just need to think about, you know, sometimes it's very easy to forget that, you know, if we put something somewhere, it's, it would be very easy to think, oh, that wherever we've placed an item, that if there is something below, that nothing would happen. Well, it's always wishful thinking, but it is fair to say that um, that mistakes do happen and consequences occur as a result of um, innocent or, I should say, tragic mistakes. So given that um, had this uh, equipment gone down into the cargo hold, the um, equipment itself has now been left in a vulnerable state or setting near the ventilation pipe. Why is the ventilation pipe important, folks? Because that controls the airflow. That controls the, the airflow of getting in and out. The passenger list is very large, and on August 9, 1841, Captain T.J. Titus believed that the total count number stood around 200 or just right over 200, maybe 225 at best. But yet, he underestimated the exact number, which came out closer to 300. There were a few instances uh, where Captain Titus had to turn down some customers, one in particular whom had multiple wagon loads of goods. And uh, Captain Titus did... Um, the one thing I will give Captain Titus credit for here is that he did allow the uh, customer to uh, tour the inside of the Erie, and by doing so, he allowed him, he didn't burn a bridge with the customer. He said to him, you know, unfortunately, I can't get you on this time, but given that I've allowed you to tour uh, the inside of the Erie, and you've obviously told me that you like what you see, I'll see to it that you can get a spot on the next uh, go-around. As for this particular uh, customer, he um, was advised to embark on a, a steamship known as the DeWitt Clinton, 
and the De and the DeWitt Clinton will be uh, one that um, whose name we will be mentioning in other podcast segments. So pay very careful attention to that name as well. Now, were there any uh, agencies who made uh, travel arrangements for those immigrants boarding onto Erie? Uh, yes, there was uh, one particular agency known that was out of Buffalo, New York. It was known as P.I. Parsons and Company. They helped make travel arrangements for a handful of the um, immigrant families. It's always good to know that they've got that there are people ahead of time who can. Um, coordinate um, arrangements so that those coming into the new world not only know where they're going, but they have a um, they have established contact. Think of it as like their agent, almost like their travel agent of sorts for, the, for that day and time. Now, uh, were there any new uh, crewmen on board Steamship Erie come August 9th, 1841? I find this um, to be important because, you know, it's one thing to have a seasoned crew with you, but if you have one or two new crew mem crew members, to me that um, that can make all the difference. And you would hope that it would always make all the difference for the better. But there were, uh, in fact, two new uh, crewmen. One fellow named John Harrington. He would be one of six firemen whose chief duty or task was to keep the boiler room wood fire going, a.k.a. Uh, keeping it constantly moving uh, to where people, you know, would feel, they would feel the warmth, uh, they would um, not just feel the warmth, but just basically keep oversee that the ship is uh, moving. And then this other fella, um, he's not even 20 years old, folks, he's not even 30, but he's younger than 20. He's between the age of 10 and 15. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that much. His name is Andrew Blila, or Blilla. Spelled B-L-I-L-A. I, I would probably prefer to pronounce it as Blila. He would go on to hold the post of what's called a callboy. That's an interesting title, callboy. Now, before there was any such thing as um, an electric bell or anything of electrical devices to um, get the attention of a particular crew person. For Andrew Blyla, his duties were pretty simple. He had to relay messages between crew members from various parts of the ship. So he was constantly going from point A to point B and advising a crew member or crew members of, uh, really in a sense, it could be breaking news, it could be news about uh, a task that needs to be performed. So he's moving around constantly from point A to point B and advising uh, the crewmen of what needs to be done. Andrew Blyla, folks, as I said, uh, he's between the age of 10 and 15. He's 11 years old. And remember, folks, as I've said before, I'd say it again, uh, when a young fella reaches, you know, past the, when he goes past the age of 10, he's considered an adult. Uh, his immune system has become so well built up that he's uh, fought off all fought off a handful of diseases that would have claimed many of children before reaching the age of ten. But he's got to figure out his career. Where does he want to go? So what do you know? He's um, he's taken up a passion for the waters. So for Andrew Blyla, he's a native of Harbor Creek, which is outside of Erie. Uh, he possessed uh, a unique skill 
what was that unique skill? Uh, and it's one that most other people didn't have. He was bilingual, meaning he spoke more than one language. And it just so happened that in 1834, seven years earlier, Andrew and his family arrived in the United States from the German village of Krozingen, Krozingen, rather, I should say, in, in Baden-Württemberg. Uh, I, hopefully I pronounced that uh, well. Um, now, my wife's brother is very fluent in German, so if, if I need to get a second opinion, I'll have to ask him. <laughs> um, had steamship Erie undergone uh, repair work prior to August 9, 1841. Uh, in fact, she had. On August uh, 6, uh, the Erie sailed to Buffalo, where she underwent a series of refurbishings, or what I call redecorations, in, in terms of uh, paint jobs that were done by the eight-crew painter team whom had boarded the vessel um, on August the 9th. Early August 1841, the shipping season is halfway through, and roughly around or just over 30 vessels were in and out of Buffalo Harbor. The August 9th uh, schedule saw five steamboats arriving into Buffalo Harbor, including 20 schooners in a sloop with eight ships departing. Departures were three to four hours apart, which included schedules um, that um, involved uh, the DeWitt Clinton, the Erie, and Rochester. Now, one thing uh, that I know all of us know when it comes to uh, immigrants coming into the New World if there's one place we've always associated with immigrants when they officially arrive into the New World in search of that American dream, what is that one place that we know? Ellis Island in New York City. Uh, what if I told you something, folks, uh, that would um, throw you for a good curveball? Now, uh, believe it or not, folks... Um, Ellis Island was not uh, the official immigration center around the time of 1841 or before. Up until 1890, New York's immigration station was located at Castle Garden on the eastern tip of Manhattan. We have to go to January 1st, 1892, folks. Ellis Island became the new immigration center. So, Okay, here we are in the year 2023, 1892, folks. So it was 131 years ago that Ellis Island had become the new immigration center. Not that uh, terribly old, folks, but but to me that was a, a very unique thing to have uh, learned. So we should be reminded uh, that there was um, another immigration center where um, immigrants went to to not only uh, you know register, but to eventually uh, embark on where they would be um, journeying into the uh, new world. Uh, what were some factors behind why many in the old world, being that of uh, Europe, came to America besides economic purposes? You know, of course, when I think of economic purposes. I think of, you know, means of uh, securing uh, better employment, means of um, doing something that um, is more um, opportunistic, unlike what you might have um, 
had uh, on your own uh, homeland in the old world. But uh, when I think of um, other reasons for why many in the old world came to America besides economic purposes, uh, there are a couple of things. Uh, for one, there were many whom came to America to avoid religious persecutions. You know, uh, one good example I could probably think of is that um, some of you have probably heard me mention this one before, but I'll tell it to you again here real quick. We have to go a ways back because this law remained on uh, Parliament's books for 167 years. Uh, Parliament had enacted what was called the Test Act of 1661. It pretty much said that you had to uh, swear your allegiance to the Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church, and that by swearing your allegiance to the Anglican Church, you could vote, you could hold public office. However, if you did not swear your allegiance to the Anglican Church and you uh, practiced a different uh, religious faith, which was fine, but just so that you know, by not swearing your allegiance to the Church of England, then you were barred from um, holding any public office, you could not uh, vote. So I think it'd be probably fair to say that um, many people felt uncomfortable with that law to where um, not only did it have an impact on them, say, for religious purposes, but uh, for political purposes also. And uh, just because you are Protestant, it didn't automatically mean you got to worship freely. I think we should also be reminded that even Catholics uh, suffered um, religious uh, persecutions in um, countries where uh, Catholicism was uh, was of the minority, but yet it was frowned upon by those of uh, Protestant faith. So it would be fair to say that many uh, Catholics uh, came to America in search of um, a better, um, in, in terms of a search of uh, better uh, religious havens. And for political purposes, there were many whom would have lived under um, monarchs or dictators whom cracked down on diversity practices in general. The 1830s and the 1840s, in fact, folks, saw the largest number of immigrants come into the United States, most notably those from Great Britain and Germany. The 1830s, uh, the, de the decade of the 1830s, rather, I should say, was um, was just shy of uh, 600,000 in terms of the total number of immigrants coming into America, whereas in the 1840s, that number was nearly 2 million. 60% of the world's immigrants went to the United States. 60%, folks. New York City's population went from 60,489 in 1800 to 202,589 in 1830. The city's population had literally tripled, folks, within 30 years. And it is fair to say, folks, that even the Erie Canal had a, a big part in that uh, process as well. Just one of many other factors, to say the least. Now, I'm, I know that most of you, most of you know who uh, Daniel Webster is. He was um, he was a well-known U.S. senator uh, from uh, Massachusetts, I believe it was. Yes, uh, from Massachusetts. Uh, but Daniel Webster, uh, in 1841, was a Secretary of State. United States Secretary of State, I should say, he submitted to the Senate um, the annual records report for 1841 listing no more than 22 U.S. ports 
that had been approved or were willing to take in immigrants uh, stretching as far north as Maine and as far south into the Gulf region as Louisiana. The third quarter of 1841 alone saw Castle Garden Station welcome 18,386 immigrants. You talk, that, that's a big number, folks. I mean, just shy of 20,000, but still 18,386 immigrants. So let's break down some, st some statistics here, folks. Out of 18,386 immigrants, 10,651 of them were men. 2,318 were farmers. 2,207 were laborers. 35 uh, physicians, 24 clergymen, 10 artists. Uh, then you have about uh, 7,735 women, uh, total number of women, that is, that uh, came over. Less than 50 um, uh, stated a, a specific job occupation, so therefore it probably tells you that all the other women um, were what we would think of nowadays as like stay-at-home moms, basically. From July 1st to September 20th of 1841, about 12,587 of the 18,386 immigrants um, came into the U.S. from England with the next largest national group that comprised of nearly 3,000 peoples from Germany, Prussia, Austria, Bavaria, and Switzerland. And I should point out to you, too, folks, that not all immigrants would have departed from Buffalo because it sounds like that many of them probably are departing from Buffalo, but not all of them. Many uh, immigrants who did come to Buffalo did establish settlements within the greater, uh, within greater Buffalo. And because they did, um, most notably Lakes Erie and Ontario um, became the top growing regions in New York state. And when I think of like Lakes Erie and Ontario, uh, when we think of Lake Erie, we've got Buffalo uh, with uh, Lake Ontario. We can probably say um, one of the uh, major cities uh, that's not far from Lake Ontario would be like, say, Rochester, uh, for example. So think about it. We've got um, people uh, populating uh, in lakes around Lakes uh, Erie and Ontario. So, yes, it would be fair to say that that is now becoming the top-growing region in New York State at this time, and really, and for the whole Northeast. So think about it. People are, are coming into um, that region of New York at a faster pace than, say, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Now, given uh, Buffalo, New York, was officially incorporated as a city in 1832, how quick would it grow shortly afterwards? Now, one thing I should point out to you all, uh, when my wife and I uh, were in Niagara Falls five years ago, we did spend about a day and a half in Buffalo. Buffalo, believe it or not, um, derived from a French word called bouffe. If you go to the Buffalo History Museum, it will tell you that Buffalo uh, derived from a French word bouffe. I, I never would have expected that, but, but it is the truth. So, given that Buffalo was officially incorporated as a city in 1832, hard to believe that that's 191 years ago, folks. So, think nine years from now, the city of Buffalo will celebrate its bicentennial. 
How quickly do you think the city grew afterwards, uh, after 1832? Well, after 1832, the city was adding residents at a rate of 1,000 people per year, and by the start of the 1840s, the population grew to around 19,000. That is uh, extremely impressive. Buffalo, New York, folks, was more than just a port in western New York. Buffalo, New York served as a vital gateway to western hubs or cities such as Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, including a small and upcoming Wisconsin community known as Sheboygan. And if any of you all want to know where Sheboygan, Wisconsin is, it's uh, north of Milwaukee. And I have um, I have family that lives in Wisconsin, but um, my wife and I have been to a place in um, Wisconsin that's on the outskirts of Sheboygan known as Cedarburg. It's a unique little village. I would strongly recommend visiting uh, Cedarburg, but... Um, but when I read this book, I was blown away that um, that Buffalo had uh, served as, not just so much as a vital gateway to the uh, major western hubs or cities of, say, Cleveland, Detroit, and Chicago, but knowing that it even served a small um, community in Wisconsin at that time known as Sheboygan. And Sheboygan's still around today. It's, uh, it's grown, but the fact of the matter is that... Um, the fact of the matter is that uh, for a small community like Sheboygan uh, back in the 1840s to benefit from uh, Buffalo's presence speaks volumes. Well, we've uh, covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast uh, segment episode, and when I'm on the air again next time, we will be uh, talking about uh, what's called a glorious gathering. In other words, a glorious gathering awaiting departure. That's what I'm going to assume But nonetheless, thank you for your time as always, and thank you once again for being such ardent listeners. Without you all, I don't know where I would be, but uh, when we uh, meet again next time, we will have more more exciting, relevant uh, information to uh, talk about um, with regards to this uh, series, uh, Disaster on Lake Erie. Of course, I know that the title may not sound the most pleasant, but you know, information, even if it's relevant, even when it does pertain to a disaster, it still must be worth uh, sharing so that this way we know the hows and the whys for why this um, disaster happened and what was done um, going forward to prevent such a an unthinkable tragedy from happening again. So, those are the things we have to uh, learn about uh, going forward as we continue to progress in the series. Well, thank you again uh, for your time and uh, continue to uh, get the word out. And um, wherever you all may live in the world, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.